Greenfluence, the podcast that brings you the latest in sustainability, responsible investing, and climate change. I'm Sophia, your assistant content and podcast editor, and I'm so excited for you guys to listen to this week's pod. We are talking with Florian Gratian, the general manager of Forest to Bio-Based Products at Scion, the leading New Zealand Crown Research Institute. Get ready for episode three. We're back with another pod. I'm your host, Tree, and I'm here with Florian. Welcome to the pod, Florian. How are you? Fantastic. Thank you, Tree. Thanks for having me. No worries. Really keen to get um, get into it and really want to start by adding and getting some context from your background. So, Florian, you came from a background in academia and ended up completing a PhD in chemistry. How did those experiences shape your initial passion and what was the transition to industry like? Um, yeah, so the, you're kind of talking about something that is many, 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 many years ago. So I've uh, done, like like many scientists, I've done my PhD um, and afterwards did it in chemistry, thought about what, what would I like to do. And, and one thing I, I really always enjoy doing is, and that's a great one of the great things with science is traveling meeting people from other other parts of the world. So I was lucky enough to secure a postdoc position in New Zealand in Christchurch, um, which is, you know, as far as you can go from 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 Germany. So it was great. Did two years of, of postdocing there. And then um, I had an opportunity to join CSIRO in, in Australia in the in advanced materials um, division back then. Um, did a number of, of close to industry related projects. And, and I really enjoyed or noticed how much more I enjoyed that interface between technology innovation but also how do you get it into companies or how do you ensure that it really creates impact and benefits for be the company the country or the globe and so I did that for for about seven or eight years more and more growing towards the business side commercial and, and business development and commercialization and after after seven or eight years I had an opportunity to go back to to go back to Europe and I uh, I joined a similar government funded research agency in Belgium Vito but at that stage purely as commercial and business development uh, manager and over and working very closely with the science teams and being in Europe in the in the innovation space meant then building large EU wide consortia bringing together industry scientists from you know 27 28 European countries so I, I hugely enjoyed enjoyed that, and, and I'm still very, very proud of that network and that connectivity I, I built there. Yeah, that must have been amazing. A lot of things probably people can complain about with the European Union, but that scientific network of 27 countries bringing it together, not always easy, but it's extremely, extremely exciting once you get it going. So I, I really enjoyed that. And definitely rewarding because that's such a massive a project to be a part of. Oh yeah, it's 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 fantastic. The um and and you learn so much. Different countries, you know, different universities, different partners bring different things. So you you have you have you know already there different coaches working together, and and they all have you know their strength and and 
in particular ways that you can pick up. So that was very exciting. And then I got the opportunity to come back to New Zealand, joining Scion, uh, one of New Zealand's crown research institutes, now really focused on forestry, but much wider circular economy, circular bioeconomy. And that allowed me to bring together both the, the science element leading that part, but with the creating, the creating impact. So initially I joined here as science leader for the uh, biopolymers, bioplastics and biopolymers teams. Since two years now, I'm general manager for um, the biomanufacturing, bioproducts, bioenergy portfolios. So this is roughly one third of, of our organization. Yeah, it is. this is all about creating then the benefits for the country. Like, yes, absolutely grounded in science and, and excellent science is the absolute basis, but understanding that you need to do much, much more to it to, to achieve benefits for New Zealand. Mm. And it's going to be a long journey ahead, but it's all about looking at how it can really benefit society. Um, but it, j- just touching on on that, um, how is a fundamental background in chemistry important for research and development in chemical and polymers space? Um, I think, and, and for anyone, for any scientist, the further you go in your career, the more you will see that there's only that tiny little amount you know and, and so much you don't know. And you just have to be comfortable with that. But there's some you need a you need a grounding in a certain in a certain space. And I was always passionate about chemistry, so that's something I I understand or I, I know about or at least understand I understand a little bit about it. But I think same with a PhD. A PhD you develop certain skills, certain certain ways of working. Um, you, you you learn to analyze problems and you, you learn to understand problems and how you tackle them. Uh, you, you get to, to learn how to deal with setbacks. If you do science and if you do research, something not working is the rule. And, and if, if something works out, that's actually quite exciting. Um, so you learn, you learn that. And I think that's the, that's the fundamental understanding that you can bring there, that you, you can walk in the shoes of a scientist. But then what I've learned later in my career is how do you bring that into a, into a different world, in, into an economic or policy setting and, and the likes, and, and that you at least understand it and you see how many people you need in a team how diverse that team needs to be because it's impossible that one person knows it all yeah exactly um i was reading a bit on this topic and phd in chemistry is is a really interesting area because there's a lot of time that you spend on you know independent research study conducting experiments um and topics can be theoretical um they can be you know related to organic chemistry as well um but your your specialization um can you share a bit on that well what i did in my in my phd probably has has not much to do with what i'm doing now i did my phd in pharmaceutical chemistry so so it was all about designing designing potential drugs for the for, for applications in, in the body. What it showed early on was necessary working with people from different disciplines or different areas. So just because you can make a drug or a drug-like component, and even if on paper it, it should work incredibly well, does not necessarily mean it even will work. So it might be toxic. It, the body might not absorb it. It might be impossible to administer it. Um, you need the tests, you need the assays, you need the biologists, pharmacists, you need the toxicologists, uh, regulatory uh, aspects. 
So it, it already kind of showed this different areas, but you need to bring together the knowledge from a lot of people just for your PhD. And it is fascinating then also to learn simply being able technically to make a molecule and to, to put things together, which is exciting. It, it might not even be a possible candidate. So, uh, yeah, it's also very humbling at the same time. Yeah, I, it's not something I, I normally think about when I think about studying a PhD. It's like it's really interesting that you say that you you're learning about the whole process of getting that drug out there and how that drug can be administered how that drug is tested how that drug can actually help someone um, and whether it's possible to actually bring it out there Um, and and that like you said has helped you um, in your current uh, job and the the jobs that you've you've had after that well, in this case, it's not even that you do it. I mean, these are these are steps that are that's a highly specific and special as well. But just to have the understanding that this will also still have to come and this will also still have to happen, I think that that is that was that was important. And the other one, and this is with I think any any chemistry project, for example, this the the need to to first understand what has actually been done in this area. This you know that you that you start you know, reading literature, understanding literature, having an appreciation for what other people have done and maybe to understand why it has worked or what they have tried. Scientific knowledge is always built on the shoulders of someone else. The, the, the nice thing, what I was excited me around science, it has no gender or no religious view or whatever. It is just there's good science or there's bad science. So it's a great, great thing to connect with people because you, you, can, you can really, it doesn't matter which country you're in, what your background is you can always talk about the same thing yeah and i think that is something we'll we'll be discussing later on but i think it's so important to to reflect on that because you need to like being able to connect with someone and share knowledge around this area or um just from your experiences like you said is is really important and going forward being able to talk to a lay person who doesn't have a lot of information around chemistry or the work that you do do you think that has helped you like your past experiences has helped you to communicate with you know regular people uh, about your industry and the work you do Oh, I think that, that was probably one thing where you you also learn from the from the mistakes or the shortcomings you, you had. So if I'm reflecting on very early seminars or very early posters or presentations I gave, in in hindsight now it was just like, oh my God, this is this is embarrassing. Um, even you know speaking only to scientists and only to scientists of a slightly different area, it, it, uh, there was no communication skills. It was was a terrible way of of trying to communicate what it is. So you. You start. That was probably something you, you will be a you will be a scholar for the rest of your life in that area. You always see great examples. You you try to find better ways to explain to different audiences, and you you learn more and more about how important it is to understand the audience. What do they want? What do they know? And and how important it is that you're able to explain your topic in, in 30 seconds so anyone can can understand it and how easy it is you overthink or you, you you believe what you do is the center of the universe but only a, a tiny percentage of the world might actually even care what you're doing so it's 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 really humbling sometimes to to make big mistakes and just look at an audience and and you see that they have no idea what you yeah and that would have you know contributed to your your you know your life and and how you approach your work as well and I think even like looking at the legal work I do, I 
like I reflect on things and when I'm talking to clients, I I just remember, hey, it's important for me not to go too far and like put too many legal words out there when they don't really need it. And they're not going to be able to understand. It's not going to help them in any way. Like they just need the information. And then you, from there, you can like go forward and explain the bits that they actually need to understand. And that is that is interesting even now. Um, we try to get our, you know, the excitement that scientists have about the area. But, you know, when you let them speak, 99.9% of the population will just, you know, switch off and, and you, you have lost them. So this, this, and this is where I think, um, you know, journalists like, like people like yourself, um, anyone doing podcasts have such a massive role to play in communicating science. Science communication is so, so important, but done, done properly and, and done really well. How do you how do you ensure that you know people kids are passionate to to take it up, but also really people understand it? And I think that is that is one thing. Yeah, working with journalists or, or working with 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 teachers, like education, is the same. There are there are elements that we always miss in when we say science or technology will make impact. There are the journalists, authors, teachers, uh, such big roles to play to 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 make the whole thing happen, and that's quite often underestimated. Mm, to make information more digestible. Um, I think that's so important. Um, I, I wanted to touch um, a bit on uh, your experience in CSIRO and the challenges you faced in creating new ch- technologies. And was it challenging communicating scientific findings? And we've, we've sort of touched on this uh, without a science background, but um, I think let's Let's look at, you know, the challenges you faced in creating new technologies. Oh, if I, if I take one of the examples, and that was, um, so I came in as a, as a chemist very early in my career, and it was in a 12-year in a research program with the aim of using fatty acids, so what you get out of oil seeds, out of, you know, crops, but to use this not just as edible food, but in industrial applications. So, you know, be it as, as, a, as a lubricant or being it as a, as a monomer in for polymers, whatever it might be. And the, the program was such a multidisciplinary from the growing side, the enzymatic side, uh, chemists, material scientists, commercial managers, legal IP, that you very, very quickly had to even understand that um, you, you had to build or you had to explain vocabulary and, and show formula. Like people wouldn't even know what you're talking about. So the, the, the challenge, how quickly can you come in these multidisciplinary teams? How, how, how quickly can you explain your point? Because if the entomologists or the plant physiologists don't understand what you're talking about, they don't even know what to do. Right. So you, you learn very quickly when you have a couple of these mixed big meetings, you talk about something and then you get questions where you think, seriously, do I have to explain that? But then it's like, oh, hold on. The same way the other way around, when they talked about entomology, we were sitting there like, we've got no idea what they're talking about. We haven't even seen the words or the abbreviations or whatever. It's like different languages. So that, that understanding, appreciation that you need to do that and, and how you do it. And scientists are very, very, can be easily offended that it's like, oh, you're dumbing down my science. It's like, you know, you, you're, you're taking away all this. It's like, no, I'm just trying to uh, make it 
applicable to other scientists. And that was just in the science area. Similar in, in other in other projects, I was involved in um, what got spun out as a drug delivery technology. So suddenly you have to explain to people that, that potentially would invest into it. So they are interested in completely different things than you know what you think is your big, you solved a massive scientific challenge and that's nice, but what does it mean? How, how you know, what do you do with it? What you know, what risks can you can you see? And moving through that, when in in other areas, then that are closer related to what I'm doing now around biopolymers or biochemicals, you know, suddenly policy regulations you had to talk to in in ministries or uh, regulation settings again. Completely different questions get asked from you that, that yes, they're built on science, but ultimately are linked to your communication challenges or skills. Wow. Like it's not something I really thought about um, how you had to explain to other scientists about certain areas. And then it makes sense, right? Because they're specialized in a particular area and you'd be specialized in another area. And to build that gap, again, you have to work on your communication skills. So if you think on the in the science side, the biggest progresses will always be made somewhere at the interface of of scientific disciplines. Yes, you can you can go down like into one area, but to make it truly applicable and and useful for a community or for the world, it will always require different not only scientists, but you know the more you take it further, other disciplines. And and to bring all that together, it it really requires how do you translate that without losing the main message. So it's, it's communication is, is really, really critical. Right. I, I wanted to touch a bit more on um, your technology to industry experience and your work in Europe. In 2013, you made this move to, to Belgium as a business development manager for Vito. Can you explain um, and, and tell us a bit more about how you sort of made that decision and what your role entailed. Well, the decision it was was interesting at that stage. I was I was living with my wife in in, in Melbourne. I was born in in Europe, so I've I've worked overseas. Then my wife, her family, half of her family came from the Netherlands. So we we talked, you know, uh, with just a young child underway. When would we like? She would like to live in Europe as well, and and especially in that emerging area of sustainable chemistry, circular economy, Europe uh, at that point in in 2011 was truly ahead of what Australia was. And so I saw the a role commercialization of business development manager in a division for sustainable chemistry focused on these types of activities that I'm doing in Europe, in Belgium. So I've, I've applied for that and was lucky enough to get it. And so we, we moved to we moved to Europe. And it it was uh, yeah extremely enjoyable three years. Um, I got to I got to work with a number of industries. And then as I said Given the way the European system is set up, you're bringing companies in much, much earlier. You're building much larger consortia. I had great mentors and great, great leaders that I was able to work with. One of them is still a very close friend of mine. I think he must be one of the best connected people in the European R&D landscape. So he, he took me, introduced me to, to, to companies, research institutes, people, politicians, you know, uh, you name it. It was a, it was a massive learning and and networking experience for me. The other part was then I was I was tasked with um, setting up a shared research center between three cross 
organizations around very specific areas. So how do you how do you start that? You know, how do you bring different research institutes together for one specific topic? How do you you know how do you in- introduce a governance structure? How do you negotiate certain contracts? How do you secure access to infrastructure? So it again was a great learning experience around this cross-border, multi-multinational initiative. Mm, that would have been a massive thing to navigate around. Like you said, um, you're not just navigating these three different research organisations together and, and helping them build a cause and um, helping them with that project, but you're, you're ensuring that you know everything else aligns as well. Yeah. On your role of BioRizon, um uh, you're in work involved with bio-based product and IP strategy on bioeconomy. Yep. Um, do you mind explaining what these terms mean to our audience? Yeah. So BioRizon, so this is basically where between um, multiple research agencies, we formed a shared research centre, BioRizon, specifically with the purpose of developing a specific class of bio-based Components or compounds, uh, bioaromatics. So this is a this is a you know building block of a lot of polymers and a lot of applications. But it should be come from biological resources. Um, so the, the the big part, obviously, then the moment you've got multiple organisations coming together, they all have their different knowledge and their different intellectual property, and you bring them you know this knowledge together. So who owns what? When? Who's allowed to use it? Do companies own it? Do we own it? When you bring partners, when you bring funding agencies in, you know who who can use what? Do you are you allowed to to just use it, or do you allow to own it and the like? So it's it's all these things that they might sound at the beginning quite quite academic and quite theoretical to think about, but imagine potentially you know companies will make multi million billion dollar investment decisions so they need to have certainty and and once big amount of dollars are on the table it's very hard to negotiate ip so it's really important to think about it early on in in long term and and to negotiate that right from the start and get these frameworks in place very very early on um if it's if it's uncertain it's very hard to to connect and attract partners Mm. and just reflecting on that i was reading a bit more about um, just investors investing into in, into various companies, and a lot of the components are you know difficult to manage. But there's you know one area like IP is a really big thing to any organization, but investors can own your IP if you know depending on um, clauses you have and etc. But that's going to be a big thing going forward for any you know founder or like any person who's started that organization going forward if the investors own their IP like there's not much control yeah so this is where we are as a research organization you have to be very careful with that that you know companies can earn own certain things but there are you can't limit your your tools of trade basically that's the biggest the biggest risk you have to be able to repeat certain things but you also want to give them enough certainty and security and these are then interesting discussions right at the start. Everyone wants to own obviously everything immediately. And and quite often it is, you know, do you actually have to own it or do you need to have access to it? So ownership and access can be different. Do you need to own a whole area? You know, you never work in this area, you know, exclusively, non-exclusively. And this is again, this is one area you, you need to you need your specialists, but you need to have at least enough understanding or appreciation how important it is. You don't need to be the expert. You can't be the expert unless it's your, you know, tools of trade. But you need to know that you need to bring in people that 
understand it and, and, and to, to ensure then that they are appropriately briefed and they know what you're talking about, but also that you have articulated your vision. You know, it's, it's easy to protect everything and destroy a, a perfectly good relationship. So this is, this is again, the, the, the communicating part is, is so vital there. Mm. And I think that reflects on to, you know, what we talked about earlier about communication and how important it is to really become humble and just understand that, you know, your work um, or whatever work you're doing is not the centre of the universe. It's it's only work until, you know, it, it's only valuable with other people around because that organisation can't exist on your own. Yeah, we try with with scientists or with, with our younger scientists. We quite often try to explain it that being in New Zealand, you explain it with a with a all blacks analogy that you have. You know, you've got um, one person putting down the ball for a try, um, but for that person to put down the ball for a try, you need at least fifteen people or fourteen other people on the field. You only get 14 other people on the field if you have all the drivers, the, the, the medical staff, the people that are organizing that, and, and, and so on. So you, if, you, if you think about what it takes for one person to put down the ball in a, in a World Cup final, what all has had to happen. And, and I think to, to understand in the science side, you know, I need my accountants, I need our, our communication people, we need facilities people. So, so when you bring it to the point that you want to create benefits or impact beyond your science, then you, you really, it's, it's quite a humbling experience to, to appreciate and to value the contributions all these people have to do and, and, and how you have to make sure that the success of what you do, that they see it as, as their success as well. So for me, it's really important that a, one of our accountants can look at a terrific scientific development and, and have a certain... Hmm. Yeah, that's that's really valuable. The the success, what you said, the success of your team members is your personal success. Yeah. And that's how it should be. Um, I wanted to move on to Zycon and the circular economy and reflect on a, a bit more about the circular economy being a concept that is taking shape. And as we extend the life cycle product, Zycon has been at the forefront of forestry management and biomaterials in New Zealand. What is Zycon's long-term vision and how has the company's work influenced public policy? Well, that's like, it's about five hours of, of answer now. Um, I think it is really exciting where what Zycon is doing at the moment at this forefront or at this nexus of, of circular economy and bioeconomy. We, we started that, or I think as, as an organization, we have worked in, in areas of it like bioenergy, forestry a lot of a lot of elements we've done you know we dating back now 75 years we know exactly how to grow forests and trees but then if you look at over the last five ten years how critical for example forestry is for for our resources way beyond just you know growing a tree um, so we looked at we looked at that and then we looked at what are the aspirations of New Zealand as a country and we saw that as, as incredibly well aligned what we do could enable a lot of the aspirations, you know, net carbon zero, waste as a resource, carbon savings, climate change, and the like. So we think this is very central. And the problem is always how do you how do you explain all of that? And and you've used the word, you know, circular economy, some use the word bioeconomy. In in the field of circular economy, Ellen MacArthur Foundation is quite well known and they've described that. As a as a country like New Zealand that is strong in the primary sector, we've used a lot that terminology bioeconomy. So, you know, using primary 
resources to make food, fiber, plastics, materials. But what we what we noticed that ultimately, you know, you're describing two separate economies, but you always deal with one economy in one country. So this is why for us, the terminology circular bioeconomy makes so much sense. You have to bring all of that together. And the other thing that, that we noticed was the way successful countries in the past were described was always using the measure of GDP, gross domestic product. That in itself is not is not sufficient. So uh, the, the whole circular bioeconomy puts society into the center. Um, you've got your you've got your, your your planetary boundaries, and within that you have to operate your um, your economy. And therefore, you know the the you know sustainable feedstocks. Um, Benefit for for the for the society, benefit for the for the environment, um, regenerative, not exploitative, is is so so critical. And within all of that, that's I'm doing a, a small part of it. So my part is specifically focused on the biomanufacturing side. So the how can I how can I produce energy, bioenergy, sustainable energy, not against you know wind or solar or geothermal now, but is a part of it or around bioplastics, biomaterials, packaging, how can that be done better? How can we make chemicals better? And, and how can we manufacture better? So this is just a part of it, not the whole thing. But uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy that. Yeah, awesome. I wanted to touch on something we talked about earlier in our previous conversation. We talked about decentralized processes. Yes, and I want to touch about how you see this applying to the circular economy in New Zealand. As yeah, well, that's and that's that's interesting. And this is for me um, one of the big changes that is is happening. So if you if you think about you know the the economy we have right now is built on the fact that we can take crude oil out of the ground and refine it. So pretty much you know our shipping corridors, our transport corridors are largely you know. This is the center of all of it. That's that's what keeps keeps us going. That provides the energy and the material. So now, if you go forward and say, look, what do I have to do to have a realistic chance of mitigating climate changes? You need to keep that oil in the ground, so you can't use it anymore. So suddenly, you still we've got you know 10 million people, uh, 10 billion people on this planet pretty pretty soon. So they need to wear some clothes. They need to live in houses. They need to eat. And the like. So I still, I'm not taking that away. So how do I provide that differently? And suddenly the source of it is different. So this is could be biomass. It could be recycled material. So therefore circular economy. How do you keep it in use at the highest value all the time? How do you phase out waste, design out waste? But also could be, you know, CO2 to materials. So once you think about that, then you do not have these big centralized oil fields anymore. So you don't do that. So you have to you have to rethink scale. So how could you do that? And that's where we believe one way of doing it is decentralized processing. So smaller scale, it allows you know putting manufacturing and processing into regional areas where you could use maybe biomass, maybe primary industry waste, and and instead of building massive pieces of infrastructure, it could be smaller scale, appropriate scale. Be a network of, of other facilities, but that's a big a big opportunity. So this is a big shift that comes with moving away from fossil resource is also that move away from just big centralized processing is feasible. Definitely. Um, I think it's super interesting because we often think about the transition to renewables. We think about all this transition and sustainability, but when it comes to processes, it's got to be 
aligned with technological development as well. Technology is being developed at a very fast rate. And because of this, these processes that we've had for, you know, two years, three years, or, you know, the last decade, it's going to, you know, be out of date soon. And just like you said, these decentralized processes, they're made to be decentralized so they can adapt to new changes in technology, new changes in better processes. Um, so regional areas, other areas um, can adapt um, much quicker and um, they can you know, create uh, more efficient processes that way. And that goes hand in hand with another concept, you know, symbiosis. So there's, you know, multiple different industries working together, you know, sharing resources or, you know, symbiotically benefiting from each other. And so the other big part around this decentralized processing is the concept of, of eco-design regions and, and value networks. So it's not just this traditional value chain, you know, I make, I sell it to you, you sell it on. It's networks of that. It, it's a big change for a lot of companies that they have to start uh, adopting that. But as you said, at the moment, um, the only constant is, is the, the technological change. If you look back over the last 10 years, is is so is so impressive and and looking forward it will just accelerate even further yeah definitely just just on this note of the new zealand economy i i wanted to ask you a question relating to the new zealand both the new zealand and australian economy um, and reflect on their trade and policy and and the and the current circular and bioeconomy trends in new zealand that the government is adopting and the things that you know we can learn from um because at this moment australia a big part of our main economy is run on you know coal exports um and now currently with intense shareholder pressure from people like mike Bannon and the support of institutional um investors such as hester um has prompted AGL to sort of scrap its proposed split into coal-powered and electricity entities. Um, But I think one of the things we do have to reflect on is the reason that the cost of coal in Australia um, has gone up, both coal and gas prices, is because most of our grid is generated by coal and gas. So it's going to be interesting going forward how we adapt to this, but I think we have a lot to learn about the New Zealand economy. So I was wondering if you could share some of the trends that New Zealand is adopting at the moment. It's it's similar what we see with a couple of companies. So Australia is an is an by all measures, current measures as an economy is extremely successful. I think the only country in, in what is it, thirty years no recession and, and continuous economic growth. So if you take that as your as your yardstick, it, it as a country, Australia did extremely well and you know, rightly so the, the, the lucky country. And we see that with companies that did really well in the past as well. So if you are doing extremely well, it's very hard to start change because why would you? You're doing well. Your shareholders are happy. Everyone is happy. And and we see it now with a couple of companies that are at the top of their game. They're doing, having extremely great, having extreme success in the areas. They are now at the point where they we know what got us there over the last, I don't know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. But we also know that that won't get us further into the future. So we need to make changes now while we still can, while we still have the power, economic, whatever power to do that. So I think that's that's not unusual that a lot of countries will have to go through that uh, at the moment. From a New Zealand perspective, 
similar. We, we, as an economy, we did extremely well in certain areas. Again, very hard to change that if that's your, you know, measure of success. But if it's in just one area, one country, in one one sector, then you're highly vulnerable to 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 change. You know, if we are exporting things, COVID showed us that. You know, if if how how quickly that that you know supply and, and supply chains can break down. So what we've seen now in, in New Zealand is really for the first time in budget packs and budget announcements, the words circular economy and bioeconomy. It's it's a start. Again, like if you go through, okay, what are you actually doing now? And you you know scrap under it. It's not very clear, but it's a first it's a first step. Any any you know journey of a thousand miles begins with a first step. So that that the fact that it's there, the fact that it's understood, it's across different sectors. It's not just this traditional sector, 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 silo, economy, circular economy, power economy is spanning the whole economy. It's more than just one ministry. So I think that's that's really exciting here that we are that we are starting these conversations. As a, as a country, I was involved in, in several um, industry transformation plans where the ministry led, but we looked at, for example, the forestry and wood processing industry and, you know, trying to stand in, in 2050, imagine what the world will look like in 2050. If we do what we've always done, will we be an economy, forestry, wood products economy that is relevant for 2050? And I think unless you change, the answer is very likely no, you know, business as usual will not get you where you need to be in 2050. But then it is, okay, what are the plans? How do you transition to that? So it's quite important to, to see what you want, but then how do you take shareholders, stakeholders, policy setting, research, people of the country on that journey? And, and we, are in, we are just on, on, that, on that level. So yeah, the rest of the world is doing it as well. So this is this is not you know that we invented here like something that is like oh look at that what 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 fascinating approach. But you know you look at you look at Europe. There are ministries for circular economy, ministries of bioeconomy. You put together um, ministry of the environment and the economy in, into one minister. You know I, I imagine like twenty years ago, the environment and, and economy totally separate concepts. Now it's like no, it's not social, economic, or sustainability has these three dimensions. Yeah, which is really amazing to see. So if you, if you just, if you think about, you know, where we came from and where we go and where we have to still go, that's, that's uh, enormous, enormous change that will have, have to happen. Mm, definitely. And maybe, you know, with Australia, it's going to take some time. And in regards to the ministry, department maybe we do need to focus on getting governments to focus on certain areas so that we we build policy and we build that space and funding for for projects to to happen if i could just reflect on an article about uh sustainable aviation fuel for new zealand yep and how this needs to be critical to reducing the carbon footprint for airlines, especially now with travel um, being opened up in, you know, many nations, many places. Can you tell us a bit more about Sycon's role um, slash expertise in this area? Maybe maybe first with the sustainable aviation fuel. So I think this is, is quite interesting. So we're talking here biofuel, so liquid, liquid fuel. And this is, again, on the, the bigger picture is we, as Scion, we looked at in what areas does biofuel or bioenergy actually make sense. And, and so you have certain industrial heat, you've got marine fuel and uh, aviation fuel. I mean, 
roading, quite quite likely we will go to to battery electrifying it. But if you and in on the shorter distances, what we will do in New Zealand likely to be electrified, you know, sooner rather than later. You know, sooner is in ten plus years. But when you talk about something like flying from Auckland to Sydney and, and beyond, that will require for the foreseeable future liquid fuel. And so therefore it's like, okay, it makes sense. Sustainable aviation fuel as a target, it makes sense. For New Zealand, that's a big that's a big commitment. That's a big it's very hard to to decarbonize otherwise. And for us the opportunity there is instead of you know sending more logs as we've done offshore is like, what could we do instead of importing sustainable aviation fuel? You know, having it grown somewhere in, in, in Asia, you know, chopping down rainforest to turn it into fuel and then importing it to New Zealand. Why don't we do it here? So what could we do there? We have, we have the, the material, we have the trees, we have the biomass. We could actually do that. It requires, obviously, investment into infrastructure. So again, there's this, this advantage of, of doing that. So the role that Scion is playing in this field, it's not the technology role because, you know, the world is investing billions and billions of dollars into sustainable aviation fuel. But what we have is the knowledge around benchmarking these technologies. We understand the how it is integrated into feedstock, into the value chains. So we are working there with New Zealand partners on, on being that um, technology or the scientific soundboard. To, to allow that. It's not our own technology. It's just like what technology is suitable for the country. Right. I really look forward to a future where we are taking care of, you know, our aviation, both, you know, nationally and globally, where we're not relying on other kind of fuels, just biofuels. But it, it will take a while. And like you said, it's it's it may take, you know, some initiative by individual nations to grow biofuels in their own countries instead of exporting all of these fuels. And I think it's 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 like always, it's not just the making more of the same. It, it will go hand in hand with more fuel efficient planes, you know, A3 um, uh, Dreamliner or A350, how much less fuel they use. That's one thing. Trying to find a positive thing in COVID. We all learned how to do um, Teams and Zoom meetings. So what we are trying also is like, how can I fly less? Um, so it's not just, you know, same behavior as before, just uh, biofuels instead of fossil fuel. It's it's the combination of that in, in all aspects is that redesign of things, the, the rethinking of things. And then what I can't offset, you, you deal with uh, by, by lower carbon alternatives. That's definitely something that we need to be reflecting on and going forward to think about um, and planning um, as we as we grow as a nation and, and, and a global earth. I want to thank you so much, Florian, for um, your time today in the pod. Uh, really enjoyed our conversation. I think it was very valuable. And going forward, um, I just want to ask you a couple more questions. Uh, this is just going to be a speed round. Okay. So just spit fire whatever, you, whatever comes in your head and we'll go from there. I'll try. <laughs> All righty. Um, what is one piece of advice you would give to your younger self? Um, study chemistry. Oh, nice. It was right. Right. <laughs> um, what are two exciting circular economy trends? 
re rethinking or rephrasing waste. So waste is not waste. Waste is a waste is a human concept. Waste is a resource. So you can phase it out or look at it as a resource. That's one. And the other part is that society is at the center of of the economy. Amazing. How can people learn more about your work and Saigon? Visit our visit our webpage. Happy to happy to put people in contact with the appropriate scientists or, or, or portfolio leaders. They all know much more about these things than I do. Okay, awesome. Um, can uh, people reach out to you uh, on any platforms? That's fine. I've got Twitter uh, handle and on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest. Okay, great. For everyone listening in. Um, Florian is more than happy to chat to you on LinkedIn or Twitter. So reach out and ask um, the questions that you're curious about. Okay, thank you, Florian, so much. All the best. Thank you very much. How'd you like the episode? I thought Florian is a great example of how passion and tenacity can take you anywhere. From Germany to New Zealand, Florian took advantage of the opportunities he was given and made a career in life for himself through his passion for chemistry and connecting with, as well as learning from, other scientists like himself. If you need a good influence, thanks for joining us, and hopefully you feel inspired to listen to our previous and future episodes. If you're a regular listener, thank you for listening in again. We really appreciate it and are so excited to grow our influence community. If you'd like to get in touch and become a Greenfluencer, check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. All the links to our socials are in the show notes. We'd appreciate if you leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform. We'll see you next time.